Chapter 3 of The Theory of the Theatre and Other Principles of Dramatic Criticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Theory of the Theatre and Other Principles of Dramatic Criticism by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter 3 the actor, and the dramatist. We have already agreed that the dramatist works ever under the sway of three influences which are not felt by exclusively literary artists like the poet and the novelist. The physical conditions of the theatre in any age affect, to a great extent, the form and structure of the drama. The conscious or unconscious demands of the audience as we have observed in the preceding chapter, determine for the dramatist the themes he shall portray, and the range or restrictions of his actors have an immediate effect upon the dramatist's great task of character creation. In fact, so potent is the influence of the actor upon the dramatist that the latter, in creating character, goes to work very differently from his literary fellow artists, the novelist, the story writer, or the poet. Great characters in non-dramatic fiction have often resulted from abstract imagining, without direct reference to any actual person. Don Quixote, Tito Malima, Leatherstocking, sprang full-grown from the creator's minds and struck the world as strange and new. But the greatest characters in the drama have almost always taken on the physical, and to a great extent the mental, characteristics of certain great actors for whom they have been fashioned. Cyrano is not merely Cyrano, but also Coquemel. Masqueril is not merely Masqueril, but also Moliere. Hamlet is not merely Hamlet, but also Richard Burbage. Closet students of the plays of Sophocles may miss a point or two if they fail to consider that the dramatist prepared the part of Oedipus in three successive dramas for a certain star performer on the stage of Diocinus. The great dramatists have built their plays not so much for reading in the closet as for immediate presentation on the stage. They have grown to greatness only after having achieved an initial success that has given them the freedom of the theatre, and their conceptions of character have therefore crystallized around the actors that they have found waiting to present their parts. A novelist may conceive his heroine freely as being tall or short, frail or firmly built, but if a dramatist is making a play for an actress like Maud Adams, an airy, slight physique is imposed upon his heroine in advance. Shakespeare was, among other things, the director of the Lord Chamberlain's men who performed in the Globe upon the Bankside, and his plays are replete with evidences of the influence upon him of the actors whom he had in charge. It is patent, for example, that the same comedian must have created Launce in Two Gentlemen of Verona, a Lancelot Gobo in The Merchant of Venice. The low comic hit of one production was bodily repeated in the next. It is almost as obvious that the parts of Mercutio and Graziano must have been entrusted to the same performer. Both characters seem made to fit the same histrionic temperament. If Hamlet were the hero of a novel, we should all, I think, conceive of him as slender, and the author would agree with us. Yet, in the last scene of the play, the Queen expressly says... He's fat and scant of breath. This line has puzzled many commentators as seemingly out of character. 
but it merely indicates that Richard Burbage was fleshy during the season of 1602. The Elizabethan expedient of disguising the heroine as a boy, which was invented by John Lally, made popular by Robert Greene, and eagerly adopted by Shakespeare and Fletcher, seems unconvincing on the modern stage. It is hard for us to imagine how Orlando can fail to recognize his love when he meets her clad as Ganymede in the forest of Arden, or how Bassiano can be blinded to the figure of his wife when she enters the courtroom in the almost feminine robes of a doctor of laws. Clothes cannot make a man out of an actress. We recognize Otta Rahan or Julia Marlowe beneath the trappings and the suits of their disguises, and it might seem that Shakespeare was depending overmuch upon the proverbial credulity of theatre audiences. But a glance at histrionic conditions in Shakespeare's day will show us immediately why he used this experiment of disguise not only for Portia and Rosalind, but for Viola and Imogen as well. Shakespeare wrote these parts to be played not by women, but by boys. Now when a boy playing a woman disguised himself as a woman playing a boy, the disguise must have seemed baffling, not only to Orlando and Bassiano on the stage, but also to the audience. It was Shakespeare's boy actors, rather than his narrative imagination, that made him recur repeatedly in this case to a dramatic expedient which he would certainly discard if he were writing for actresses today. If we turn from the work of Shakespeare to that of Moliere, we shall find many more evidences of the influence of the actor on the dramatist. In fact, Moliere's entire scheme of character creation cannot be understood without direct reference to the histrionic capabilities of the various members of the Troupe de Monsieur. Moliere's immediate and practical concern was not so much to create comic characters for all time as to make effective parts for Lagrange and Ducrossi and Magdalene Bayard, for his wife and for himself. Lagrange seems to have been the Charles Wyndham of his day, every inch a gentleman. His part in any of the plays may be distinguished by its elegant urbanity. In Les Précieux Ridicules, the gentlemanly characters are actually named Lagrange and Ducrossi. The actors walked on and played themselves. It is as if Augustus Thomas had called the hero of his best play not Jack Brookfield, but John Mason. In the early period of Moliere's art, before he broadened as an actor, the parts that he wrote for himself were often so much alike from play to play that he called them by the same conventional theatrical name of Mascaril or Scannerel, and played them, doubtless, with the same costume and makeup. Later on, when he became more versatile as an actor, he wrote for himself a wider range of parts and individualized them in name as well as in nature. His growth in depicting the characters of young women is curiously coincident with the growth of his wife as an actress for whom to devise such characters. Moliere's best woman, Silemaine, in La Misanthrope, was created for Mademoiselle Moliere at the height of her career, and is endowed with all her physical and mental traits. The reason why so many of the Queen Anne dramatists in England wrote comedies setting forth a dandified and foppish gentleman is that Colley Sibber, the foremost actor of the time, could play the fop better than he could play anything else. The reason why there is no love scene between Charles Surface and Maria in the School for Scandal is that Sheridan knew that the actor and the actress who were cast for these respective roles were incapable of making love gracefully upon the stage. The reason why Victor Hugo's Cromwell overleaped itself in composition and became impossible for purposes of stage production is that Talma, for whom the character of Cromwell was designed, died before the piece was finished, and Hugo, despairing of having the part adequately acted, completed the play for the closet instead of for the stage. 
but it is unnecessary to call from the past further instances of the direct dependence of the dramatist upon his actors. We have only to look about us in the present day to see the same influence at work. For example, the career of one of the very best endowed theatrical composers of the 19th century, the late Victorien Sardou, has been molded and restricted for all time by the talents of a single star performer, Mademoiselle Sarah Bernhardt. Under the influence of Eugene Scribe, Sardou began his career at the Théâtre Français with a wide range of well-made plays, varying in scope from the social satire of Nous Intimes and the farcical intrigue of Les Pâtes de Mouche, known to us in English as The Scrap of Paper, to the tremendous historic panorama of Partrie. When Sarah Bernhardt left the Comédie Française, Sardou followed in her footsteps, and afterward devoted most of his energy to preparing a series of melodramas to serve successively as vehicles for her. Now, Sarah Bernhardt is an actress of marked abilities, and limitations likewise marked. In sheer perfection of technique, she surpasses all performers of her time. She is the acme of histrionic dexterity. All that she does upon the stage is, in sheer effectiveness, superb. But in her work, she has no soul. She lacks the sweet, sensitive lure of Deuce, the serene and starlight poetry of Modeshka. Three things she does supremely well. She can be seductive, with a cooing voice. She can be vindictive, with a calling voice. And voiceless, she can die. Hence the formula of Sardou's melodramas. His heroines are almost always Sarah Bernhardt's. Luring, tremendous, doomed to die. Fedora, Gizmonda, La Tosca, Zorea, are but a single woman who transmigrates from play to play. We find her in different countries and in different times, but she always lures and fascinates a man, storms against insuperable circumstances, coups and cause, and in the outcome, dies. One of Sardou's latest efforts, La Saussière, presents the dry bones of the formula without the flesh and blood of life. Zorea appears first shimmering in moonlight upon the hills of Spain, dove-like in voice, serpentining in seductiveness. Next, she is allowed to hypnotize the audience while she is hypnotizing the daughter of the governor. She is loved, and she is lost. She curses the high tribunal of the Inquisition, a dove no longer now, and she dies upon cathedral steps to organ music. The sorceress is but a lifeless piece of mechanism, and when it was performed in English by Mrs. Patrick Campbell, it failed to lure or to thrill. But Sarah Bernhardt, because as an actress she is Zoraya, contrived to lift it into life. Justly, we may say that, in a certain sense, this is Sarah Bernhardt's drama, instead of Victorin Sardou's. With her, it is a play. Without her, it is nothing but a formula. The young author of Patrie promised better things than this. Had he chosen, he might have climbed to nobler heights. But he chose instead to write, year after year, a vehicle for the muse of melodrama, and sold his laurel crown for gate receipts. If Sardou suffered through playing the sedulous ape to a histrionic artist, it is no less true that the same practice has been advantageous to Monsieur Edmund Rostin. Monsieur Rostin has shrewdly written for the greatest comedian of the recent generation, and Constant Coquelin was the making of him as a dramatist. The poet's early pieces, like the Romanesques, disclosed him as a master of preciosity, exquisitely lyrical, but lacking in the sterner stuff of drama. He seemed a new de Benville, dainty, dallying, and deft, a writer of witty and pretty verses, nothing more. Then it fell to his lot to devise an acting part for Coquelin, 
which in the compass of a single play should allow that great performer to sweep through the whole wide range of his varied and versatile accomplishment. With the figure of Coquelin before him, Monsieur Rostand set earnestly to work. The result of his endeavor was the character of Cyrano de Bergerac, which is considered by many critics the richest acting part, save Hamlet, in the history of the theater. L'Eglon was also devised under the immediate influence of the same actor. The genesis of this latter play is, I think, of peculiar interest to students of the drama, and I shall therefore relate it at some length. The facts were told by Monsieur Coquelin himself to his friend Professor Brander Matthews, who has kindly permitted me to state them in this place. One evening, after the extraordinary success of Cyrano, Monsieur Rostin met Coquelin at the Porte Saint-Martin, and said, You know, Coq, this is not the last part I want to write for you. Can't you give me an idea to get me started? An idea for another character? The actor thought for a moment, and then answered, I've always wanted to play a vieux granat du premier empire, un grenadier a grande moustache. A grumpy grenadier of Napoleon's army, a grenadier with sweeping moustaches. With this cue, the dramatist set to work and gradually imagined the character of Flambeau. He soon saw that if the great Napoleon were to appear in the play, he would dominate the action and steal the center of the stage from the soldier hero. He therefore decided to set the story after the emperor's death, in the time of the weak and vacillating Duc de Ronstadt. Flambeau, who had served the eagle, could now transfer his allegiance to the eaglet, and stand dominant with the memory of battles that had been. But after the dramatist had been at work upon the play for some time, he encountered the old difficulty in a new guise. At last he came in despair to Coquelin and said, This isn't your play, Coq. It can't be. The young duke is running away with it, and I can't stop him. Flambeau is but a secondary figure, after all. What shall I do? And Coquelin, who understood him, answered, Take it to Sarah. She has just finished Hamlet, and she wants to do another boy. So Monsieur Rostan took it to Sarah, and finished up the duke with her in view, while in the background the figure of Flambeau scowled upon him over grande moustache, a true grognade indeed. Thus it happened that Coquelin never played the part of Flambeau until he came to New York with Mademoiselle Sarah Bernhardt in the fall of 1900, and the grenadier conceived in the Porte Saint-Martin first saw the footlights in the Garden Theatre. But the contemporary English-speaking stage furnishes examples just as striking of the influence of the actor on the dramatist. Sir Arthur Wing Pinero's greatest heroine, Paula Tanqueray, wore from her inception the physical aspect of Mrs. Patrick Campbell. Many of the most effective dramas of Mr. Henry Arthur Jones have been built around the personality of Sir Charles Wyndham. The Wyndham part in Mr. Jones's play is always a gentleman of the world, who understands life because he has lived it, and is wise with the quiet memory of old pain. He is moral because he knows the futility of immorality. He is lonely, lovable, dignified, reliable, and sound. By serene and unobtrusive understanding, he straightens out the difficulties in which the other people of the play have willfully become entangled. He shows them the error of their follies, preaches a worldly-wise little sermon to each one, and sends them back to their true places in life, sadder and wiser men and women. In order to give Sir Charles Wyndham an opportunity to display all phases of his experienced gentility in such a character as this, Mr. Jones has repeated the part in drama after drama. 
Many of the greatest characters of the theater have been so essentially imbued with the physical and mental personality of the actors who created them that they have died with their performers and been lost forever after from the world of art. In this regard, we think at once of Rip Van Winkle. The little play that Mr. Jefferson, with the aid of Dion Boussacault, fashioned out of Washington Irving's story, is scarcely worth the reading, and, if a hundred years from now, any student of the drama happens to look it over, he may wonder in vain why it was so beloved, for many, many years, by all America. And there will come no answer, since the actor's art will then be only a tale that is told. So Beau Bremel died with Mr. Mansfield, and if our children, who never saw his superb performance, chance in future years to read the lines of Mr. Fitch's play, they will hardly believe us when we tell them that the character of Bromel once was great. With such current instances before us, it ought not to be so difficult as many university professors find it to understand the vogue of certain plays of the Elizabethan and Restoration errors, which seem to us now, in the reading, lifeless things. When we study the mad dramas of Nat Lee, we should remember Betterton, and properly to appreciate Thomas Otway, we must imagine the aspect and the voice of Elizabeth Barry. It may truthfully be said that Mrs. Barry created Otway, both as dramatist and poet, for the orphan and Venice preserved, the two most pathetic plays in English, would never have been written but for her. It is often thus within the power of an actor to create a dramatist, and his surest means of immortality is to inspire the composition of plays which may survive his own demise. After Deuce is dead, poets may read La Cinta Morta and imagine her. The memory of Coquelin is, in this way, likely to live longer than that of Talma. We can merely guess at Talma's art, because the plays in which he acted are unreadable today. But if Monsieur Rostand Sereno is read a hundred years from now, it will be possible for students of it to imagine in detail the salient features of the art of Coquelin. It will be evident to them that the actor made love luringly and died effectively, that he was capable of lyric reading and statico gascande, that he had a burly humor and that touch of sentiment that trembles into tears. Similarly, we know today, from the fact that Shakespeare played the ghost in Hamlet, that he must have had a voice that was full and resonant and deep. So from reading the plays of Moliere, we can imagine the robust figures of Magdalene Bouchard, the grace of Lagrange, the pretty petulance of the flighty fair Armand. Some sense of this must have been in the mind of Sir Henry Irving when he strove industriously to create a dramatist who might survive him and immortalize his memory. The facile, uncreative Willis was granted many chances, and in Charles I lost an opportunity to make a lasting drama. Lord Tennyson came near the mark in Beckett, but this play, like those of Wills, has not proved sturdy enough to survive the actor who inspired it. For all his striving, Sir Henry left no dramatist as a monument to his art. End of chapter 3. Recording by Todd.